You're listening to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger. You're with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. And Mike Connolly. Hello. And our guest today, Zoe DeWitt of Zero Comma, Corpses Catatonic, Necrophile Records. Hello, Zoe. Hi. Thank you for joining us. I got to see Zoe perform at uh, Summer Scum in New York earlier this year, and we'd been in talks before that to do this interview, but after getting to meet and, and also see an excellent performance, we figured it was high time to talk about the world you created with Necrophile Records and the, all of the projects that you were in and affiliated with. So I guess the easiest place to start is at the beginning, right? So when did you discover industrial music and, and how did that set you on this path? Yeah, I think this was uh, when I was around 18, 19. A friend uh, had a huge record collection. I lived in the countryside then. And basically, I came across uh, Throbbing Crystal. they were quite influential uh, because it was actually a new experience of music in a way. It was a kind of, it was not so much music, but falling into a kind of different world or experience. So it was quite touching, actually. And that's how I became... (laughs) absorbed into this uh, genre in a way. And when did you decide to start taking that that absorption, that interest in this and make your own music? Actually, uh, it happened that a girlfriend once said to me at that time, uh, I should take less drugs and do something uh, more productive. So I thought, okay, let's do it, (laughs) and (laughs) bought the synthesizer. This was a Korg MS-20, and I played around and with it, and also at the same time, I heard uh, that it's possible in Vienna to study electroacoustic music at the Music Academy. There was a kind of workshop, not... uh, fully regular study and I started to do that and so I had a studio to use and so it was just one step leading to the next one. Were you able to ever see Throbbing Gristle live or any industrial performances early on before you even started doing music yourself? Not at that time, no, no. I saw Throbbing Crystal. uh, in the 2000s in sure. Austria mm-hmm. one time, but not in the original formation. Were you able to see any shows in Vienna early on, or were you pretty secluded from any sort of activity like that? Yeah, there were, there were concerts, actually a lot of concerts, but it was more this uh, uh, new wave uh, stuff like Human League or... Seth played several times in Vienna. Cool. Uh, yeah, Virgin Prune, something like that. But sure, so sure. not the 
the original industrial bands like Throbbing Crystal, SPK, or Cabaret Voltaire, for example. Well, and even leading up to discovering Throbbing Gristle, what was your musical interest before that? Were you listening to other electronic music? Were you interested in music at all before hearing something like Throbbing Gristle? Yeah, I always listened to music. Actually, as a child, I listened to Frank Zappa, for example, because mm -hmm. my parents had one record. And when I, I was actually also a bit uh, influenced by glam rock. This was when, when I was 11, 12, there was Slate and uh, Alice Cooper I liked actually because he was so terrible and cruel. And yeah, this, <laughs> aesthetics, yes. this aesthetics of that and uh, being ugly and all that stuff. So this negative attitude. And then I actually listened also a lot to jazz like Miles Davis and this electronic kind of early 70s uh, fusion jazz and electronic jazz. And I think this influenced me a lot. So this kind of soundscape approach was in a way important for me. But also this experimental approach of free jazz, for example. You grew up art, correct? Your, your father was a sculptor, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah. So w was art also a big part of this uh, journey for you when you were listening to, starting to get into experimental music? Were you also getting into art and experimental art at the same time? No, actually not, because the relationship with my father was rather problematic. So I was, I rejected art, actually, fine arts. And for me, music was rather an alternative to fine arts than something which could uh, go together. This came for me rather late, actually, that I realized that it could be one organism and not two, and not alternatives. Vienna has a rich history of art, including like Egon Schiele, the actionists. Did, when did you discover that stuff? Was that around you at the same time? Actually, yes, it was. When I came to Vienna, so I said before, I lived in the countryside in my youth and came to Vienna to study. At that time, in the 1980s, the so beginning of the 1980s, uh, Hermann Nietzsche was looking for actors, for example, and he, he made lectures in one of my, of my favorite uh, bars where we usually met to recruit uh, actors. And so this was actually... I didn't have to think a lot about it. I just uh, said I want to do that. And so it was at the same time when I started Zero Karma, I took part in the three days uh, play of Hermann Nietzsche's August Mysteries Theater. Actually, at this point, muse, my music and the music of Nietzsche, which is a important part of his art, this uh, went together very well, in a way, because it's 
the music of Nietzsche is also very uh, monotone and archaic and reminded me a lot also of Tibetan ritual music. So this formed a unity in a way and was uh, quite influential for me. Incredible. And definitely want to talk more about your participation in those actions yes. in, uh, in, a, in a little bit. But before you got to that point, you started really submerging yourself in the industrial culture and the industrial yeah. world. So you hear, you hear Thriving Gristle. How quickly did you start to think that maybe this is something you could do? Was it immediate? Or, I, you know, I know you said your girlfriend said, to you know, do something more productive, but how how quickly did that happen from hearing it to kind of thinking, oh, I could do something like this? It did not take so long. I cannot yeah. remember so well, but perhaps this is a question of one or two years. Right. So and were you were you writing with industrial records and in Genesis at that time, or did that come? you know, a year or two later as well. Yeah, this came rather quickly because uh, this uh, whole uh, network, uh, international network of people interested in industrial music, they were all connected by postal contact. So it was very similar to social media now, in a way. So people were just writing to groups to mail other companies send me please a catalog and so actually all people interested in this field were connected and it was part of the game in a way to join this uh, scene yeah to, to keep contact with each other and there's such a, a metaphysical element to you know your concept behind your performances and your subject matter matter like it, it seems like you came into it aiming at the metaphysical did that happen all of a sudden did it happen slowly were you inspired by throbbing gristles other inspirations the temple of psychic psychic youth yeah the temple of psychic youth uh, for sure but I think this, the interest came also a bit before. This interest in metaphysical topics, I read a lot uh, Antonin Artaud, uh, the French writer, and he's also a kind of uh, outsider and has a kind of outside position and I don't know. It's it's somehow it's my nature a bit. And when did you discover people like Austin Spare? Was that before discovering industrial music, or was that around the, all around the same time as well? It came all a bit at the same time, I think. Yeah. So I can remember because it's it's quite funny. I I had so in this. In this age, at that time, I had the idea to become a shaman. But actually, I did not know what that meant and what that is. <laughs> it was just an idea popping up in my mind. And, and But it shows 
in a way that this uh, there was a kind of latent interest in all these uh, topics and yeah and so I bought some books people and friends recommended to me about magic they said yeah you should read Alistair Crowley and so I I bought some books and and then you come across Boston Osmond Spare who was at the time uh, only available uh, in Indian. So I asked friends to send me books and and to understand uh, him, I started to translate Spare. So in, it was in 1990 or before, in 1988, that I translated Osnazum Spare's collected works to German. Yeah, again, one step uh, somehow led to the next one. And so Corpses Catatonic will be your first foray into recorded music. Yeah. And you said you were doing this while you were at the university? Yeah. Even and before, I think. I you mixed it you... at the university, but I started with it before. So actually, university, we did not learn so much there. We, what we learned is a little bit about the history of electroacoustic music, and we learned how to make tape loops. So we were cutting tapes, uh, gluing them together, and this was the main technique uh, which we were thought, uh, thought there. And that's how In Corpses Catatonics release was put together? Partly, yes. So I had the synthesizer and partly I made the tape loops. Even with Zero Karma, uh, a lot of these rhythms were tape loops because I cannot keep a rhythm. Uh, <laughs> I had to use loops. <laughs> <laughs> and with the Corpses Catatonic material, you know, with a lot of your output, there really, there's a finite amount of material available. You know, there's the tape, some comp tracks, for for and for both zero comma and corpus catatonic is the first tape the sum total of what you recorded or was there a lot of trial and error before you hit on what you wanted to release no it was more or less my complete work of that time so yeah there's no unreleased stuff no and so what sort of atmosphere were you setting when you were recording Corpses Catatonic? I assume you were by yourself. Were you at that time working within the ritual context that you would later, or was it still the before that would come? Yeah, no, there was no ritual or occult context for Corpses Catatonic. I was just sitting in my in my room and playing with synth and recording. I had a synthesizer, I had a guitar, I had yeah, tape machines. And what were you recording to? To uh reel to reel or to just to actual cassette? Now the the Actual technique was at that time to 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 have uh, uh, a real tape machine, 
to record one track on, on one half of the tape, then take uh, make another recording on the on the second track, then mix all this together, uh, play it again on one track, and take uh, use the second track again to record the third track. <laughs> so it became more more and more so worse and worse actually the recording quality. But that's what gives it. It's atmosphere. Yeah, so much texture. And it gives it that obscurity. Mm-hmm. And it gives it, yeah, like Tara said, that strange texture where you sh- can't really tell where things start, where things yeah. end. And I think it adds to the entire atmosphere of the yeah. of the whole but thing. That's also a reason why there are not so many layers on my Cops' Catatonic mm-hmm. tracks. It's uh, perhaps three different... Uh, tracks of sound not more and then you decide to start the label to put this out were you it did it uh, did the idea begin that you would you were going to use necrophile to release just your stuff or did you always want to work with other people when you started the label yeah, I cannot remember so well. Uh, the main purpose was in the beginning to release my tape. Right. But then it, one close friend, for example, had this uh, unreleased recording of uh, Robin Crystal, What's History? At that time, it was uh, attributed to Robin Crystal. And there was actually no, no, vinyl or no cassette release of that so i always had in mind to do this perhaps as a second uh, release i wrote to genesis Piorich then uh, if it's okay to release it he agreed and so the the second release of necrophile record came actually quite close after the corpses catatonic release so cool and mm-hmm. when you've put out the Corpus Catatonic cassette, how did you get the word out? I mean, you know, I know you're connected with a lot of people through mail and through the industrial network, but what exactly does that mean? You know, you, you have, you made the tape, you, you, you copied, how many copies did you do of the, of the first run of it? I think perhaps in the beginning it were 100 copies. I'm not sure. sure. So you have, you have a hundred copies of this tape. How do you get that? information out to people that this new tape is available how did that work back in 1983 yeah i had uh one friend who introduced me to this uh mail network of uh people interested in industrial music and uh he sent out flyers for me and so people responded wrote me uh ordered the cassette and this was actually quite easy and and how long did it take for that to get around like you know we 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 take for granted at this point in 2022 you you make a post and then people know about it and you know start contacting you but back then obviously there's the lag so more or less the same right and Mm -hmm. and was it would it be like every day you'd get another order did it all you know 
throughout a month or so, something like that? Like how, what was that? What was that like? Yeah, it was more or less the same as it works now. Perhaps with, perhaps not immediately that you get re your responses, but within a few weeks or a few days. Uh, I had this catatonic cassette. I had then the, the What's History tape, and people just wanted to have it. They, they wrote, they said, uh, yeah, I want to order, or send me your catalog, send me your list, and it was actually quite easy, so. And the design. Well, we all still want it, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the the design was there from the, the beginning, from the first tape, and you had a very, you know, you had a distinct look that was clear this mm -hmm. is necrophile records this is the design that you were going for where where did that interest in design come from and how did you apply that to necrophile this was all extremely improvised uh, i mean yeah. there were no computers i could make drawings i could uh, i had a typewriter and then there were this uh these letters where you could uh, rub on the paper, this letter set uh, material. So there you had uh, so letters which uh, looked more printed, like printed typefaces. Uh, but uh, when you look at my catalogs, they are very irregular because you have to place this foil on the paper, then rub on it with a, with a pen, and then it's on the paper. And then you can copy it. So it was, uh, it was actually based on the techniques which were available then. Copy machines, uh, typewriters, uh, I could cut out uh, images from books and glue it on my templates. So I was, in fact, not trained uh, graphic designer, not at all. <clears throat> Did you draw the skull on the cover of Corpses Catatonic? Yeah, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Was there ever consideration to do Corpses Catatonic live? Yes, a bit, but I never did it. So <laughs> right, it right. never happened. It was very much a DIY project realized at home. And it did not happen so much in a professional field of music. It was a very private, uh, improvised thing, actually. Corpses Catatonic makes its appearance in 1983. And then you also release the Genesis Peorge, Stan Bingo, What's History cassette yeah. in 1983. And then we get to the first compilation, The Beast 666, also in 1983. And this is the first appearance of your other project, Zero Comma. This is a lot of activity in the, in the first year yeah, in terms of yeah. just starting something up here. But it's also obvious to see sort of, you know, you were in contact with Hunting Lodge from the U.S., right? But you also have Coil on this, on this compilation. And... Some artists that seem to be, well, either sort of a mystery track right at the end of the compilation. Um, had you already abandoned Corpses Catatonic at this point and decided to focus on Zero Comma when, when working on the B666? I think on the B666 is a track by 
Cops is catatonic and also by Zero Karma. So the last uh, track by Cops is catatonic and the first by Zero Karma. And also the first coil track was uh, on this cassette, the first ever released coil track. Um, it was a kind of, of passage from one project to the next one. So the, this uh, Copsis Catatronic track uh, on the P666 was, had the title Colonzon. This has a relation uh, with the magic of uh, Alistair Crowley. So here starts uh, that my interests in the occult uh, found a manifestation. And this was also the beginning of Zero Karma. So it was just a, a switching from one approach to a slightly different approach. One marked difference in Zero Karma is the use of human bones as instruments. When did the idea for that start and how did that process go? This was uh, clearly inspired by Psychic TV. So Psychic TV had on the, I think, first or second album uh, on this bonus LP, uh, this track of 23rd type on trumpets on the themes uh, vinyl. And I thought, yeah, this is nice. <laughs> But uh, why only use type on trumpets? You could perhaps make uh, many more instruments out of uh, human bones. And so I started to do that. This was in the spring 1984. Okay, so the first Zero Comma track is not utilizing the human bones, it's everything on the, the first no, cassette. No, the first Zero Karma track on the P666 uh, used uh, tape loops of a Tibetan ritual and some percussion, like Tibetan uh, symbols. And I also had a red cage, so I used this red cage as a percussion instrument. And you you fashioned drums from skulls and horns from thigh bones. What other instruments did you make? I had one flute. I had a xylophone of thigh bones. I, I made some kinds of rattles uh, by putting finger bones into two skull caps, so, and I shaked it. Uh, what else did I use? I, I made some kind of uh, combined uh, longer wind instruments where I combined the bones from the arm and from the lower part of the leg, and I attached the, the mouthpiece of an oboe. So these were wind instruments that uh, also made this very special sound. Some uh, percussion instruments, like a bone which uh, had carved 
was made like a guiro. So when you, it's like a rasp. And how were these bones collected? Yeah, this is the question which everybody asked. I heard of a, a cemetery where they have a charnel house. So these are small, like chapels, small houses in the area of the cemetery. When they have uh, small cemeteries, they make these houses. It's quite common in Austria. And I heard that, uh, yes, there is one uh, village in, in Lower Austria where you can enter this house very easily and find bones. So uh, this sounded very uh, attractive for me. And so I went there, I drove with my car there and had two bags and I went into this house and took what I could carry, actually. So I had something like uh, nine skulls and a huge amount of all kinds of bones. It was a bit spooky then, of course, to come home with this material. And this has a, a strange uh, atmosphere and aura, of course. So it's, uh, yeah, it's... A bit disgusting, a bit irritating. Yeah, and, but uh, it was the project I decided to do and I had to get over it and work with it. And The bones you're collecting aren't nice, clean medical specimens, right? These are discolored, maybe with bits of other things still left on them. Not flesh, but hair. So they were too old uh, to have flesh on it, of course, but uh, the the hair doesn't get away, so it's it's not rotting. And you could sometimes have pieces of hair on the skulls, and also they were not the bones were not so nice uh, white, for example. They were rather brown, or even have green spots on it, and so on. That's what I'm so impressed by, because, you know, it's one thing to say you made an instrument out of bones, but you actually figured out how to make an instrument out of bones. And they those weren't hollow. They had marrow. So you had to clean them and deal with all of that. So I, I've always found that such a fascinating story because you made a variety of instruments, but cleaning those bones to make them hollow, that does not seem easy. I mean, clean you cannot clean them because more or less they are clean. Yeah, you take off when there are pieces of hair, you have to remove that. But you, they are more or less in a, in a final state in a way. But what was really a terrible experience was to just to, to cut them because this made a very ugly smell. Mm -hmm. Then you take a saw and, and you have to saw the cups off or saw the caps off. This was quite disturbing, actually. So it was a bit uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> How would you describe that smell? Do you remember it? Is it something if you do you feel like you could, if you smelled it today, you would know it immediately? Did it stick with you for a while? I cannot remember so well if it was just a the smell of burnt bone or I don't know anymore. I remember it was disgusting and disturbing. Right. What were some of the other challenges in creating instruments? I mean, you know, the idea 
of having instruments made out of human bones, but then the reality of actually making that, like, you know, hitting a skull maybe isn't the sound that you thought it was going to be. What, what were some of the challenges and, and things that you learned while creating these instruments? I just did it in the most simple way. Right. I, the only thing where I uh, relied on some technique, this was uh, when I was a child in primary school, I made a, a workshop for building a bamboo flute. So, so you had that uh, knowledge yeah. Yeah. of I how to do that. I remember how this was done, so to make... Uh, uh, to cut uh, this uh, necessary uh, hole, where to cut these holes and so on. So yeah, this was the most complex instrument was the flute. I knew how to do it, but then you just drill your holes and you you just hope that it will work. And usually it was like this, that... Um, I drilled five or six or seven holes into one instrument, and five of those holes were working, and the other two perhaps were not working. So, but I could not ch change that anymore. And and with the skulls, uh, the drums, I cut the caps off and put the sheepskin on it. So I stretched uh, some skin on it, and so I had just normal drums. The challenge perhaps was that they sounded very poor, <laughs> like like you just are drumming on a little cardboard box or so. So I had, when I recorded, I always had to put them on the heating that they are stretched well. And then they sounded good. But after 10 minutes, it was already bad again. So... And didn't you do some techniques with the recording, like slow some of it down to give it a bigger sound? I, I believe. Yeah, I, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, how did you actually cut the skulls? Were you doing that in your apartment with? And what what did you actually use to cut the bone? Uh, Just normal, a drill and a buzz saw. Uh, a normal saw, yeah. yeah. Just hand a just a, a handsaw. Hand <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For sure. And this recording will be done over the course of a couple weeks. Yeah, it was. I was uh, due to this interest in occultism. I was uh, very influenced also by Kabbalistic numerology. So if it was possible, I, I did this uh, project in a certain number of days, for example. I think so. Mm -hmm. The recording took me 28 days. And uh, actually, the whole uh, concept of uh, this album, which I recorded, was based on the fact that I had joined the Temple of Psychic Use in the beginning of 1984, and I received this name Eden 77. 
So everything was based on this uh, meaning of the number 77, which was to me a very magical number, of course. And even this 28 was a multiplication of seven. That's how it worked at that time. And the name of the album would also be the name of the the studio you know what you what you called your studio the the secret temple of lila and could you talk a little bit about what lila is and what that meant to you at the time yeah this also referred to this uh temple name in 77 because uh the numerical value uh of the word lila which means night in arabic was 77 so this was just all is uh synonym that referred to this temple name and to this magical metaphor in a way. And Oz would also have something to do with this as well. It's all it's all all connected. The same because the numerical value of the letter O in Hebrew is 70 and set as uh, value seven, so it adds up to seven seven. So this is all, it's all the same. A time of great synchronicity. Yeah. And were you at this time also? You're involved in Temple of Psychic Youth. Were you also utilizing teachings from Austin Spare, Chaos Magic, and Sigils? Was that also utilized in this recording? Yeah, I mean, in the temple, uh, this was the ritual part of the temple of psychic use, was this use of sigils. And chaos magic, uh, I think, only emerged at that time. So this was too early to know about it. And the interest uh, in Austinus mit Speer came in that time. So I think there was one uh, translation which I knew already uh, in German, but this was very bad. This was also a reason why I started to to translate Speer. Yeah, so Speer was present, of course, even in the titles of the album. There were several references to Speer. So, yeah. I was never so much interested in Alistair Crowley, but soon very interested in Spear. And also my contact person uh, in the Temple of Psychic Use was John Balance. So I communicated a lot with him about all these topics and we were more or less at the same time interested in the same things. And also around this time through Necrophile Records, you were producing newsletters, for lack of a better term, you know, sending out writings. How often did you do that? And how many are uh, are there? I think there were five or six such newsletters. So I always was used to write to express myself uh, in writing. In the beginning of Necrophile Records, there were more of these documents produced, later not so many anymore. It's changed a bit, of course, also. 
Do you still enjoy writing? I'm at the moment writing a PhD thesis, so yes, I have to write. I always, <laughs> I always it's always part of my life in a way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Excellent. The zero comma tape is released, and about how many do you recall? Was it a hundred again, or were you now doing more like two hundred, three hundred? The the corpses catatonic tape was in the beginning produced by a kind of company who made these copies for me, but uh, then I I only had the covers printed. I always printed five hundred uh, covers and then copied the cassettes uh, in my apartment. So what I needed, I produced. But the sales were going up very quickly, actually. So I just uh, uh, recently uh, read uh, a lot of uh, the letters I received at the time, and I found uh, letters from Rough Trade San Francisco. And they they wrote me a first letter. Yeah, we heard of this tape. We would have a lot of interest here. Uh, send us a list and the prices. And then in the next steps, they ordered, I think, uh, 100 tapes. So 35 of each cassette or so. And the, the third letter was, uh, that they wrote, they sold all the tape on the first day. So this was wow. incredible. They ordered another hundred or even more. It was gone in one day. So, yeah, uh, unbelievable today. <laughs> that's great. And you, you said you were just going through those letters. Did you keep all your correspondence? I kept... Uh, all my correspondence, yeah. Wow. So the, 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 so the letters I received, not the letters I wrote. Right, I did right. not copy them, but the ones I received, I have all of them, yeah. Oh, that's so cool. And around this time, you are going to be asked to do a live performance. In fact, two in the Netherlands. Yeah, this happened one time. Uh so NL Centrum in Amsterdam, they they invited me to do a performance. This was in 1985. But in fact, I was not the least prepared to do such a performance. I could not play live with this little uh, skull drums. It would not have worked. And also not with tape loops. So... I said, yes, I can do it, and uh, but I made then a more traditional performance with instruments like normal drums, and I asked friends to play some instruments like guitar or bass, and, and I added tapes more or less. And this was the two Sirokama live performances in the Netherlands in 1985. And there would also be a BDSM element to the performances, correct? Yeah. Partly influenced by Nietzsche, uh, because I worked with Nietzsche in 1984, and these performances were in 1985. 
So I also worked with animal blood and uh, priest stress and so elements like that. Did you take enjoyment from performing live? I enjoyed it in a way, yes. So, but, so why was there no follow-ups to those? Was it just you didn't want to pursue it or... You know, because in my mind, only having done two shows, I sort of assumed that you just weren't interested in playing live. I think the reason that there were only two shows were partly that I never had this background of uh, of being a live band or a band at all. And then after the release of the Sirokama album, I was in a kind of crisis in a way because I did not know how to continue. I wanted to make a video project, but this was quite difficult. And I found it also difficult to work with other people. I was more always... Uh, limited to myself and uh, and also this Zero Karma album uh, with the human bones it was something so outstanding that I did not know how to what, what uh, should follow then and so I lost a bit in the connection to it that just uh, remained what it was, and that's it in a way. You were still quite connected to ritual music and music made with bones, though releasing something like Montgomery Bone on the Archangels of Sex Rule the Destruction of the Regime, and also releasing albums by Ainsolf and Lashtal on Necrophile. That, that interest seems to have stayed throughout the, the duration of the label. Were the sales and interests and correspondence still quite active when you released the later albums on Necrophile, like the like the Ainsolf? No, the, the the interest was was always very high. It was rather that my interest in a way declined. I was not so professional. It was this label was not uh, run so professionally. So it was it was a little project. I was happy that I can sell something and uh, make a little money from it. But I lived in a, actually in a small, limited world in my own flat. I was not so, how to say it. Uh, I could have made more out of it, but I didn't do that for whatever reason. Gray brought up McGovner Bone, which is a favorite project of the three of ours for sure. Obviously there is a connection with the human bone element. How did you end up getting in touch with McGovner bone and why did the, for the Raven cassette remain unreleased until just recently? Yeah. The, the reason I think was that I, that I did not work so professionally. I, I based my decisions on my feelings. Perhaps I was not so sure about uh, some other projects, if I really want to release them or not. But with Gunderborn, uh, they were actually very inspired by Zero Karma. And uh, 
the, it was even also in 84 that they also went to a cemetery and tried to get bones. And but uh, unfortunately, they were caught by the police. It's a known, uh, well-known case. Uh, yeah, and they were sentenced and had to do some civil service, and it was was covered in the press of, of Newcastle upon Tyne in England. <laughs> There's some terrible uh, events uh, and terrible um, story how how perverted. Uh, young artists can be <laughs> also i became more and more interested in the occult and occult practices i was much more focused on my own uh, occult practice and i lost a bit this connection with the outside in a way so in this later years of necrophile records mm -hmm. yeah, exactly so so can you tell us about where you were about your studies in the occult, especially as they took over your world as opposed to making music? What were you studying at that time and where did that take you at that time in the later eighties? I lived in the in the second half of the 80s. I lived a rather private life, in fact. So I had a child. I had a girlfriend. I was more enclosed in this uh, private, small private life, and and I I lost this connection a bit with the public, uh, just with an international audience. Uh, I did not think about making music. I wanted to work with video. I did this still in the in the years of '86, around '86, '85, '86. But this also was not very. Um, did not uh, lead to a final result. Oh yeah, in a way it declined in apt way. And but in this private life I was you know, focusing on meditation, on working with sigils. Uh, actually I spent three hours per day in meditation and breathing exercises and concentration exercises. Uh, because uh, when you are interested in occultism, uh, you learn that this is very important to do these things, and you will you will get somewhere when you do this. Actually, you don't get anywhere, but you have to find <laughs> that out <laughs> uh, after some years of practice. Were you still in touch with John Balance throughout this time? Yeah, I also lost this con contact then. And, but I translated Osnosmith Spear in 88. Oh, and wow. then I switched from uh, publishing cassettes to publishing books. This was then 1990. And I, uh, I repeated what I did with Necrophile Records with a small publishing company. Which this I, is Edition NNL? 
Yes. And you're still you're still publishing, yes? I still sell books, but I don't publish new books. It's just a bit similar with what happened with Necrophile Records. I did a few books, like 10 books, and six or seven of them are still selling quite well. So, yeah. And around 1990, you would sell the Necrophile catalog to Stallplot, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. And they would re-release a lot of stuff, but in a very different form and with different art. Did you have anything to do with that, or were you just hands-off once you sold it? No, they they used my original artwork, but uh, what was a bit strange is that they uh, just uh, put the different artworks on randomly on the releases. So the... I don't know the the I don't have it in mind now, but something like the Corpses Catatonic had uh, had some artwork from Lashtal on it. Or they just uh, mixed everything mm. up, so this was a bit disturbing. But yeah, and they yeah. left some tracks off, a couple things, correct? They did not release the Secret Eye of Lila, I think. And they also did not release Coil Drake. So uh, I think, uh, and also John Balance wrote that to me. He was not happy about that deal. So in his mind, this was not okay. And he's probably right. Uh, so I think he for sure told uh, Starblood his works are not allowed to be released by them. That's why there are no coil tracks uh, released by this, this Starplot uh, cities of microfile material. And you said you were in a very private time in your life yeah. from the end of the 80s into the 90s, but were you in any way aware that there was interest continually for Necrophile and Zero Comma and Corpses Catatonic? Not at all, to be honest, not at all. <laughs> this uh, came back to me like a boomerang in, uh, with uh, the social media and the internet uh, in the late 90s. Then I realized uh, that there is, uh, how was this uh, called, My MySpace? There was a MySpace group, a page with fans of Zero Karma, and there were something like 300 members or so. And I found that, and I was totally surprised. And it was a very strange experience. And at that point, I realized that, so to say, in the outer world, there is an interest in my early work. For me, it was something which was completely distracted from, uh, uh, split off from my personal. It was just a part of my past, but I had lost somehow connection until that time. And then, so from the early 2000s on, I started to, to build this connection up again and to understand that there is an interest in my work. Uh, I, I 
uh, established contact with some people who were interested in my work and then yeah this is a process which is still ongoing and it's now it's very satisfying for me that there's so much interest and I can it's an acknowledgement of my work and yes I can be part uh, take part in the process uh, which involves me and public audience and I try to make now the best out of it. As I mentioned earlier, I, I saw you perform in July. Are you doing more performances, anything planned? And are you working on new Zero Comma recordings by any chance? That was a slow process. I, I, I wanted to revive uh, the Zero Comma project. Or I wanted to start making music again already. Uh, around 10 years ago i started to buy synthesizers and somehow get familiar with with uh, what is available in terms of technical gear how, how i can make music I, I had to learn all that from the beginning I was buying synthesizers again, played around with them, and in a way tried and learned to find my way to these possibilities. And it was some years ago now that I could say that I found an approach which is working for me, and this is, I'm now working with modular synthesizers, but not with oscillators. I'm only working with uh, samples of my old zero camera recordings. So even what you uh, heard in New York, uh, for that I only use samples of my old zero camera stuff. So even when something sounded like a bass drum or a bass line, it was all produced from this original Sirokama uh, material of 1984. Okay, I didn't realize that, but it's being processed through the modular and, and yeah, controlled yeah, exactly. and triggered there? Okay. Yeah. And when you started to become interested in making music again, did this coincide with the tribute CD that came out around 2011 or so, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, is when yeah. that came out? Did that... Was that part of getting you back interested in producing music? Yeah, definitely. This was a strong uh, impetus, a strong impulse uh, to to start making music again, for sure. And had you gotten offers to play live before coming to New York this year? I had uh, an invitation, uh, I think, one year before, two years before, from New Forms Festival in Vancouver. They wanted to uh, have a live performance from uh, by Zero Karma, uh, but I said I cannot do it. I'm not prepared for it. Uh, I can try to perhaps make some tracks uh, which they can play as uh, background music somewhere in the cafe, or I don't know. 
but even that was too much for me. I tried to to produce uh, half an hour of music, but somehow I the time was too short, and I said that no, I cannot do it. I'm sorry, and it was and. New York, uh, this, this tempting uh, thing was uh, I should only make music for 15 minutes. And that's why 15, 20 minutes. And that's why I said, okay, I think I can do that. Um, I give my best and 20 minutes I, I can do. And then it was a bit more. And, yeah. Mm -hmm. But this uh, Vancouver New Forms thing was the only invitation. I, perhaps I had more. I, uh, perhaps I had more requests, but I, actually I could not uh, accept them. I just uh, said when somebody wrote to me, I'm sorry, this, I cannot do it. So it took me some time to to realize that I still can do it and. Yeah, but it was a lot of work to prepare something. Before this performance this year, you had been doing stuff just in the art world. And you've done performances with people or exhibitions with people in the 2010s. When did you start working in that world? This started in a way in the end of the 1990s. I realized uh, when I had this publishing company, I realized that it's not satisfying for me uh, only to publish books which uh, were written by other people. So I realized I have to do art by my own. I started to draw, I started to paint. Yeah, this was also a long way because uh, I was at that time not uh, in the position to attend an art school. I was also, my approach was still a bit unprofessional too in this field. Also at that time, I lived again in the countryside in my parents' house in Upper Austria. And in the beginning of the 2000s, I came back to Vienna. And at that time, I also uh, was accepted at the Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna. And then I started to work a bit more, not professionally, but uh, more committed or somehow with a more professional attitude in the field of art. I still don't um, don't feel that I'm such a professional artist in a way. Uh, but yeah, this so that's how I was also more going into the art world and art scene and it was satisfying for me because I left a bit my my solitary universe of being a single person alone in my private life. I had a lot of contacts uh, in the, at the academy, of course. Then this international contact started through social media and people interested in my earlier work. And so now I'm happy that I have established quite a 
good working relation with with the outer world in a way with having audience uh, having contacts all over the world and making something out of it do you think you are going to continue playing live in O'Grey? Can I ask, is this, was the New York a one-off or is this something that you are interested in continuing in the coming years? Yeah, I will for sure continue it. As I said before, I'm now writing a PhD thesis, which I started some years ago. I want to finish that in the next months and then uh, exclusively uh, fully focus on the music and then I also want to continue playing live for sure. Yeah. Does your PhD thesis include music in any way? No, not at all. It's uh, about the topic of uh, Austrian um, costume jewelry designer uh, of the 1950s. Uh, named Sissi Zoltowska. She was a countess and she she was born in Vienna in the 19, 1919 and died in Los Angeles in 2004. And my father had a love affair with her. And so she has to do with my own childhood a bit. So I played with her, with her with parts of your jewelry as a child. And so this is a kind of psychoanalytic thing a bit. And I wanted to know more about her, and, but there is nothing known. So I had to start my own research. And that's why I write this biography of her. That's great. Uh, I loved your self-portrait as Sissy. And of course, I had to, you know, go down a rabbit hole of just binging the amazing jewelry and the cabochon and like all of her style. Just awesome. Does your interest in the occult remain or is it something that's part of your past? I think when you, when you are successful uh, in dealing with the occult, you somehow internalize these things. So you don't have to rely on books or teachings or whatever stuff. It's more about um, being able to work with your mind in a certain way and to make perhaps your wishes uh, happen by by the way how you think about them. That's all. That's, I would not say this is as to do a lot with uh, the occult in, uh, as one would think about it, but it's in a way the result of it. So yes and no in a way. I understand what you're saying. Yes. yes. Yeah, it, can, it can shape who you become in the future and it's something yeah, that you yeah. develop a personal practice yeah. with in terms of existence. Yeah. My, my idea always was uh, so the most uh, powerful uh, way of doing magic is to do no magic at all. Because uh, we all, in my opinion, we all are doing magic all the time. So what we forget, what we are afraid of uh, can happen or what we wish can happen in a way. And 
And I think uh, when you just uh, make this a normal process, how you shape your life, then this is, uh, you don't need outer means of, of doing something to achieve goals in a magical way. So life is always magic in a way. <laughs> Absolutely. The mundane is magic if you shift yeah. your perspective. Here we are, 2022, working on the PhD. First performance in decades has happened. The PhD is taking precedent now for the rest of the year. Is that correct? Yeah, something like that. And then moving forward, possibly some more performances and, and music. Now, are, have you recorded anything while preparing? for the New Yorkshire? Did, did you do any recording at all or has it all just been practicing? I worked on these tracks. They were more or less finished shortly before the performance. So there was actually no time to make recordings uh, uh, apart from these preparations. A little bit, yes. Uh, I had, uh, I think, one track I had already before the invitation uh, to New York. So sometimes uh, I record something, but I always like to make also a video uh, to accompany the recording so that I can, so that you can watch it uh, also. Yeah, maybe a little bit, but nothing really apart from that. No actual recordings that are unpublished so far. And moving forward, will you, will you be going under the name Zero Comma? Will you revisit yeah. Corpses Catatonic at all? Is that something no, you would no. you wouldn't do that? It'll it'll just no. be all under the name Zero Comma. But in a way, it's uh, the new manifestation of Zero Comma. In a way implies my approaches that I had with Copsis Catatonic because uh, Copsis Catatonic was working with synthesizers, with electronic gear. Uh, Zero Karma was working with acoustic instruments. And now I combine both. I take this uh, samples of my old uh, recordings of the acoustic bone instruments and process it by modular synthesis. So in a way, these two ways merge to something, to a new synthesis. Oh, we should also note there's the recent Vinyl On Demand Necrophile Records collection and book detailing a lot of Zoe's work and the stuff around the label, along with reissues of all of this material that we've been talking about and more. So uh, please check that out as well. Including the unreleased McGovner Bone for the Raven. Mm-hmm. And Zoe's uh, website is quite comprehensive and provides links to a lot of performances and archives. And I enjoyed um, checking it out. So everybody else should too. Yeah, then, uh, so regarding the VOD box, uh, for me, the most important part was the book. We actually collected uh, all the material, all the documents, Available at all, a lot of correspondence, the whole correspondence with uh, John Balance, 
parts of my correspondence with the Temple of Psychic Use. So this is, was also very comprehensive uh, documentation of necrophile records uh, these early years. I was very happy about that and very proud, actually. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's in included in the box. A big piece of history. So mandatory to pick up to fully understand and grasp the entire world that Zoe yeah. has created with Necrophile and Zero Comma and Corpus Catatonic and all the releases surrounding it. So it's a great time to discover or rediscover Necrophile or like we've sort of talked, it was one of those, it was such a mysterious label for so long when you were not really in contact with people. So the fact that there is now context that you are available, that doing this interview, have been doing lectures, people can really put all the pieces together where there was that big chunk of time where it was just pure mm. mystery. Yeah. So it's a, it's a great time to... It's been a lovely to peer behind the veil. Absolutely. Well, Zoe, thank you so much. This has been incredible. Yeah. Thank you, really? too. <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. You've been listening to Noise Extra. Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artist for over 17 years, by Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noise extra, on the web at noiseextra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at Noise Extra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to Noise.